welcome to episode 91 of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Drew O'Grizzik. Samantha Ming of the Events Podcast. What's going on this week? Hey, Drew. A lot of fun events this week. On Monday, HackerNest returns with our August Meetup. This is a fun event to connect and meet with people in the local tech community. It's at 8 p.m. at Brain Station. On Tuesday, there's Women's Pitch Night. This is an awesome event for female entrepreneurs to practice their pitch and get feedback from industry experts. That's at BLG in downtown at 6.30. Also on Tuesday, there is a presentation on deploying Lambda-based web apps, along with other JavaScript-related lightning talks. Catch this at 6.30 at VFS Cafe. Moving on to Wednesday, there are two events to choose from. The first is a discussion on variational inference. It starts at 6 p.m. at SFU Harbor Center. The second event is Code and Coffee. Hear talks from developers in our community. This week's topics include techniques for implementing a full-feature website without writing any JavaScript. This is at 7 p.m. at the Richmond Public Library. Finally, on Thursday, week four of the Intro to Deep Learning with Fast AI is happening at the Boeing Vancouver Labs at 6 p.m. Also on Thursday, CodeCore's Demo Day. CodeCore is a programming bootcamp, so if you're an employer looking for tech talents, this is a great event to check out. I'm Samantha Ming, and that's this week's top events you should check out. And we're here with special guest, Alex Cruz, manager of engineering and architecture. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a two-hatter, so I'm an architect slash development manager. At um, Splunk. At Splunk, that's right. Tell me a little bit about what is architect slash dev manager. It's fairly common when you get to sort of a more senior position in the industry to, to take multiple responsibilities and to sort of spend more time on, on leadership-y stuff, basically. Uh, but anyways, the, my two hats sort of apply in different contexts, so... I manage a team of uh, currently eight people, but two of them are interns that are leaving, um, so I'll be down to six, kind of a normal thing. Um, half of those are working on uh, on my sort of skunkworks project around streaming analytics, uh, which you can see my job posting about if you have any questions, and half of them are working on machine learning. So um, uh, part of what we do in, in my division at Splunk is we maintain the machine learning toolkit, which is it's a free add-on if you have Splunk Enterprise uh, that lets you... Um, train machine learning models and sort of make predictions and detect anomalies about your data when it's in Splunk without having to sort of export it and, you know, run it through some external tool and bring it back in, etc. So it's, it really helps you operationalize machine learning very quickly. Are the job postings reflective of the duties of the interns that you're losing? Uh, no. No, the interns interns are kind of uh, generalists, basically, at Splunk. I, probably most, most other places, too. Um, so you know they'll they'll sort of show up for four usually four months sometimes eight months, and they'll they'll sort of jump into one project and then if they get bored of it sometimes they'll transfer over. So one of my interns right now who's leaving today, uh, he started out on the other side of the, of the shop where they work on uh, advanced metrics analytics UI stuff, um, and he decided to, to jump over. So he came over to my side and he was working on the streaming analytics stuff for a while. So why don't you tell me a little bit about about Splunk? What is Splunk? Uh, who's using Splunk? Sure. So Splunk is, one way of looking at Splunk is it's a very weird distributed database. So that's kind of a, a from a, a software architecture standpoint. 
but from a use case standpoint, um, what we do is essentially uh, we have a, a system that indexes machine data. So you've, you've got hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of servers. Every one of them is producing sort of an endless stream of log records and metrics about how it's behaving and how it's feeling and what kinds of, of work it's doing. Um, and, you know, traditionally in sort of, you know, IT, um, those, you know, say back before five, ten years ago, those logs would just sit there on the server, get deleted eventually. And if you had to troubleshoot something, you'd have to like SSH into the machine and grep the logs and, you know, figure things out. Um, and of course, when you have thousands or tens of thousands of servers, that doesn't work. Um, so what you can do instead is you can configure your servers to send all their, their log files to us, uh, to the Splunk product, basically. Um, and it's, it's, it really lets you search them in a centralized way, right? So, you know, a user calls you up and says, hey, we're getting a lot of errors on the web server. Um, and you can, you know, sit down at one console and say, you can literally type in web server error and get a bunch of results and then sort of iteratively and progressively refine your query to, to sort of get more and more focused on, on, on the essence of the problem. Um, and it really helps you to rapidly get to, uh, what's the term, to, to reduce your mean time to resolution, basically, by, by providing you really easy access to a huge amount of evidence about what's, what's going on in your systems. So that's kind of the core, uh, what we call the search and investigate use case in, in, in Splunk. So I take it that uh, organizations that have a lot of logs to sort through would probably benefit greatly from Splunk. What about for somebody kind of just getting started, maybe with a smaller startup, would that be would there be services that Splunk offers that would be worthwhile checking out? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that's notable about Splunk as compared to some of our competitors is we still have a, a very fast um, sort of download trial um, use use sort of uh, kind of onboarding process. It's, it's really, really easy to, you can download the product for free, you can install it, you can start using it. Um, and our licensing is not based on installations. It's based on the amount of data volume that you ingest per day, right? It's, it's a bit weird, but essentially for free, uh, I think the way it works today, I believe, is you get 30 days of sort of unlocked enterprise features. Um, and then after that, you get the product sort of locks itself down to have less features, but you still can keep using it forever as long as you stay under, I believe it's 500 megabytes per day, right? So, you know, every every day the, the counter resets and we 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 sort of lock down the features once you exceed your 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 bytes for the day and then you know midnight rolls around and you get more so if i'm building out a uh, a blog for my cat kind of app and pushing it to heroku uh, i probably wouldn't exceed the 500 megabytes it's per day it's pretty unlikely yeah yeah <laughs> so probably something to maybe play around with uh why don't we shift over a little bit more toward the engineering side and the uh the culture the daily life what sort of problems do people tend to work on, uh, particularly on your team? Uh, so, um, so like I said, I have essentially two teams that I work on. Um, one of them is the the machine learning team. There, there are three. Uh, we call them mission teams. I guess in in less. So we've gone through a sort of a, a process uh, revolution in the past six months, and now we're our process is sort of fairly directly inspired by less, which is large-scale Scrum. Um, so we have these these teams of, uh, you know, five to eight people, and they're, they're supposed to be cross-functional, right? So each team has some front-end, some back-end, some quality, some data science in our case. Um, and the theory is that any one of these teams can sort of pick up work off the backlog and start working on it, um, and all the teams can sort of equally engage in, in these long, interesting processes. Uh, so half of the people that I manage um, are, are on these these sort of long-lived cross-functional teams that are working on basically delivering features for the machine learning toolkit 
um, on a fairly rapid cadence, right? So we release, I think right now we release every six weeks. I'm, I'm trying, I'm arguing to get that to be even more frequent. Like I, I'd prefer to have two week releases so that the main reason is that, is that, you know, if you, if you miss the window and your feature doesn't ship, it feels really bad if you need to wait six weeks or eight weeks for your feature to ship. But if it's only two weeks till the next release, oh, okay, I could wait, right? It's, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt so bad basically to miss the window. What's the reasoning behind having uh, six week release windows? Is there a series uh, of processes such as QA that needs to be done? Yeah. So currently the, the sort of, there is a, unfortunately, there's a fairly large fixed overhead of every release. Um, so there's, you know, Splunk has a, we have both an on-prem, like install it and use it on your own, on your own hardware and a cloud offering. And the people that run the cloud service are a little bit pickier about, you know, what they're going to allow to run on, on their system. So they have to validate every release that we make, basically. And that's, that's kind of the, the biggest pain point. Um, apart from the usual sort of QA, uh, we're, we're definitely moving towards, you know, a, a CI CD type of situation so that, you know, developers have to write their own test unit tests and, you know, we get coverage reports and, you know, at some point in the next, you know, hopefully in the next three months, it'll become easier for us to, to release with much less friction and much less pain. We're working on that. You mentioned a process revolution. Uh, yeah, yeah. What, what exactly is a process revolution and how did that manifest? Uh, yeah, so we... That's an interesting question. So a lot of engineers and, you know, developers and people are, are very opinionated about process and most of the industry is sort of moved towards agile in general right so you know the idea of we have a daily stand-up where you know people discuss what, what happened yesterday what happened today are there any blockers that are preventing me from get, from getting my work done uh, that that continues right uh, the sort of the overall structure of of the ceremonies and you know who goes to the meetings and so on doesn't change very much across all agile processes uh, less large-scale scrum is it's, I think it was, I don't know who started it. It's, it's, it's been adopted at Nokia and Intel, a few other companies, I believe. Um, and really what it's about is trying to escape some of the failure modes of traditional sort of small scale agile. Uh, anyway, it's, it's an attempt to, to apply agile principles to a, a large organization, right? So at Splunk, I believe we have about, about 800 people in the products org. So, you know, outside of, sales and marketing and, you know, administration, people that actually are responsible for delivering product. There's hundreds of people there, right? And um, finding a way to structure all of their work across the entire company um, is pretty challenging. Um, so there's, you know, less large-scale Scrum involves things like there's a, a unified product backlog, right? So every every item that, that some product manager deems to be worthy of spending time on goes onto the shared product backlog and then in theory, any team that, that wants can sort of, you know, not exactly bid on, but they can pull work off the backlog and start work on it and so on. In practice, there are more specializations, right? Um, one of the main reasons to, to make this transition has been to, to reduce the sort of hyper-specialization, right? So mature organizations will tend to get in a situation where, where people will, will develop a great deal of expertise inside their narrow field of, field of expertise, basically, and they'll become the experts. And it becomes difficult for anybody else to sort of walk in and, and, and be productive on, on a code base that someone else is already the, the specialist in. And one thing we're trying to do with this, this transition is to, is, to, is to sort of break that coupling between individuals and teams and particular product features that they historically were, were experts in. So I've noticed something. Uh, some people really bring sort of like a, a polyglot background and approach toward problem solving. Uh, and some people are uh, 
oftentimes very sort of tooling or framework um, dependent and or, or at least specialized. And so I'll notice sometimes that uh, translates to very potentially very idiomatic in that frameworks uh, point from that framework's perspective types of code and, and practices versus uh, the more polyglot or generalist potentially uh, point of view, which might not care as much about the um, the conventions in that set of tooling or those languages or or whatever. Uh, how do you sort of see balancing that, or, or does it matter? Um, so this is you could probably predict based on looking at the history of of Splunk, even even looking from outside. You know, if you it doesn't take very much detective work to see that you know the the core of the product is written in, in C++ and most of the the sort of user facing stuff is written in python um, and you know going back to the beginning of the of the company which wasn't that long ago basically you know we didn't des- design it as a set of microservices for instance right so the the sort of the core of the product is a fairly large C++ code base and it it was never really intended to be you know, broken apart into small specialized components. Um, so, you know, having sort of a polyglot mindset, um, it kind of presupposes a, a low degree of coupling between different components in the system. Um, and unfortunately, at least for the, the sort of the, the bread and butter product, which is Splunk Enterprise, you know, we're moving in that direction, but it was never really intended for that. And it's, it's fairly difficult to reverse engineer uh, that kind of architecture onto a code base that was never designed for it. But I suppose starting at the organizational level and having smaller cross-functional teams working in this uh, large-scale Scrum might be pushing toward that direction. I wonder. I wonder how that'll go. It'll be pretty interesting to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, so it's kind of you know everyone agrees that that that's a great direction to move in, and this is something that essentially all sort of mature, successful software companies will eventually get to right i mean it's it's a great problem to have right you've been so successful for so long based on a product that you know is reasonably mature and doesn't doesn't necessarily require huge amounts of of re-engineering but always uh, sort of inescapably your the product ends up you know people try to to do new things with the product that it was never intended for. And that sort of creates friction in terms of the evolution of the product. Not to mention, you know, team, organization, company growth, uh, market changes, yeah. uh, and, and all sorts of different things. I think we've all probably been through the, um, you know, build something, it works, it does what it does well enough to sustain your business, but then trying to uh, trying to add things to that. What do you, what do, you do? I don't know. Great question. Um, yeah, there's no easy answers, right? Um, so if, I mean, if you can turn back time and sort of rewind the clock by 10 years and say, well, it turns out that we, you know, this is, we didn't, right? I've only been at Splunk two years, but I mean, if you could take what you know today and, and bring it back to your former self um, and say, hey, in the future, we discover that this is a great way of, of building large software. Um, everybody would, would, most people would, would agree that that's a great thing, but, you know, there are no time machines. So, um, so getting, getting from, from the context of, a mature, stable product um, that maybe isn't as flexible as you might like into, you know, a, a sort of more uh, future compatible or, you know, decoupled microservices kind of um, configuration or architecture is there, there are absolutely no short shortcuts to doing that. Um, and, you know, Splunk is, is no exception. I think that we're, we're doing a pretty good job of it, but, you know, it takes time. 
So what sort of uh, what sort of skill sets do engineers tend to have? I've noticed on the postings, uh, a lot of times it does say senior. What are the senior developers roles and what are the tasks there? And what what do we mean when we say senior developer? Because I've hmm. I've kind of heard different uh, different explanations and different expectations around that. So, I mean, I can tell you about what I expect from somebody who is a senior. Um, so for me, as you as you sort of transition from through the sort of ranks from, you know, junior to senior to principal, etc. Um, you, you spend, increasingly, you spend more time communicating and mentoring and, you know, doing sort of leadership type tasks, you know, reviewing code and commenting on wiki pages and, you know, training people and sort of mentoring and helping people to solve their own problems. And you spend less time on, on your own deliverables, right? Uh, and, you know, this is, this is something that, that is, is difficult for a lot of people to to cope with. I mean, I've been going through it for for about three years now, basically, where I I sort of transitioned from sort of the I w- so it, at Metaphor Software, the company that got acquired by Splunk about two years ago. I was the director of architecture, um, and then I transitioned into management, basically, um, and I found you know that I had a lot less time to to spend on code, and I was spending a lot more time on helping people on my team to sort of unblock them and make sure that they were all productive and happy and working. You know, working effectively towards towards a, a shared goal, um, and I think that's that's kind of emblematic or or typical of of becoming a more senior person. I don't think that the management per se is is not at all required, right? So at Splunk, you know, we have a, a dual career track basically where you can stay in engineering as an individual contributor, or you can you can be in management, and they're both roughly equal, right, in terms of advancement opportunities and compensation and that kind of thing. So there's no expectation that you'll go across to management once you reach a certain level. But I think it's it's natural to to expect that people will spend more time um, mentoring and communicating and reviewing and less time on writing, delivering the actual code. Um, and it's as productive as, as you might be as a senior developer. There's a limit to how much you can do in in a in a given week, basically, right? And if you can if you can sort of leverage your experience and expertise into bringing up other people so that they can contribute towards the same the same goals. I think that's that's a pretty good. I mean, honestly, there's only one of you, right? And you know, if if you can if you can help a, a number of people um, be productive together, then that's that's a win, I would say. That's a relatively unique description uh, from what I've heard of senior developer, and I really like it. I I, I really like the way you put that, and I think that um, going forward, I'll be I'll be thinking of of senior a little bit different. Um, could you give me an example uh, of a time, maybe recently, where you've helped somebody unblock or a uh, sort of, I guess, advisory role type uh, thing? Well, that you've I mean, that's kind of all I do, basically, right? Like, I spend almost all my time communicating and planning and, and you know, writing about principles and, you know, sometimes working on PowerPoint, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so I'm probably a bad example. But in terms of, you know, the... The most senior developer on my team, um, he spends a lot of his time mentoring, basically, right? So he he'll sort of, you know, give a, a few little nuggets of guidance or wisdom to one of the junior devs, and the junior dev will kind of go off and 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 you know work on the problem for a while, and then they'll come back and say, "Hey, I, I tried this and it didn't work, and what do you think about this?" And there's just kind of this natural back and forth. Um, and honestly, when somebody is a is a senior dev, like that's that's part of what I I need them to do, right? So because I can't I can't provide all the guidance to everyone on my team. It doesn't make like my time doesn't really allow for me to be communicating with everybody all the time, right? I really need I guess I don't like military metaphors, but I need lieutenants basically to sort of be the 
the middle, you know, an intercept sort of the 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 easier or sort of um, not necessarily easier, but you know, there, there are certain questions that that when you come out of school or when you're a junior developer, you don't you don't have have quick answers to, um, and sometimes. A senior developer, not only based on on their tenure in the industry, but based on how long they've been at a company, will have you know really quick answers to sometimes to complicated questions, and that's that's part of what I rely on them for is to is to help out and provide those answers, or you know to help people get through their their problems quickly. So I guess a lot of that's not necessarily textbook stuff, and a lot of it is potentially very opinionated, and there's different opinions, different sort of. Um, I guess, schools of thought, when to use what sort of patterns or, or where to have your abstractions. And I, I've heard some people be very opinionated about their opinions uh, or very loud about their opinions and others not so much. How do you sort of decide what you care about on your team? You know, I like to say, I've been saying this for a couple of years, I guess. Um, when I get to, when I'm, I'm at my age now, so I'm 43 years old, and I've been working as a software engineer more or less for almost 25 years. And I really, one of the sort of benefits and drawbacks of, of having whatever level of maturity I have is that I see both sides of everything, right? So, you know, someone will come to me and say, I think it should be this way. And I'll say, that's interesting. I might agree with you. But then again, you know, have you thought about this other way? Um, so for me, I, re I feel like this is kind of a uh, an almost a mandatory attribute of, of a senior developer is that they they sh they need to be more flexible, not less flexible, right? Um, and it's not just because, so, I mean, for one thing, the way that you approach a problem 10 years ago um, is not necessarily appropriate for what you, for the problem you're trying to solve today, right? So context is everything. Um, and you're even, even your skills described in a fairly narrow sense are also probably not very applicable 10 or 15 years in the future, right? Because technologies move on and so on. Um, so I think the, you know, flexibility and, and, um, uh, not just an ability, but a tendency to to doubt your own opinions and perspectives is is actually mandatory for for more senior developers or senior engineers or whatever you want to whatever noun you want to use. But I, I don't I don't think you you can do without it. I think that if you if you are old and inflexible, then then technology and history and the company are going to move on, and you're going to be stuck in 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 a place where where you're you aren't necessarily as valuable anymore. This is really interesting. Um, the way that you, you phrased that, it made me think I've been rereading through uh, a book from, uh, I think, the 80s, and maybe it was written a little bit before that, Programming for the Unix Environment, uh, or the Unix Programming Environment. Um, and I, I'm kind of thinking, wow, this stuff, you know, this is, this is a pretty old book, but not much has changed. You know, sure, a lot has changed, but not, maybe not so much with, uh, with sort of the core behind why we're doing things this way or, um, you know, there, there might be some slight syntax differences, but a lot of times not much has really changed. And you often hear, you know, people presenting on an idea uh, and then other people kind of shouting from the back, you know, it's not a new idea that was done in the 60s or, or whatever. Uh, and, and so that's kind of interesting. We might not have necessarily solved these problems. And, and right now we might be coming back to, uh, you know, a distributed system versus a, a single monolith as being the new hotness. Although, are there new patterns that we see emerging? Or are there kind of new, there may be new combinations or uh, new languages where new words to learn um, and slightly different approaches, I guess, to solving those problems. But are the underlying sort of core uh, principles change? 
Uh, so it, it's Unix is an interesting example because you know it's Unix kind of was born in 1969 or, or so at Bell Labs, and there were sort of a, a a small set of core principles that Unix was kind of designed around. You know, every, most things are files. Um, you know, the distinction between anyway, people kind of understand what Unix is all about. Unix in particular has a, a huge amount of longevity um, for a variety of reasons, but it's also very low level, right? So I think that if you, the, the sort of the, the fact that Unix has been around for a long time and people still take inspiration from it and still rely on it is, is wonderful, but it's, it's just table stakes now, right? It's just, you know, this is the basic stuff that you need to be an operating system and to support, you know, a, a diverse and evolving population of, of code running in user space. Um, and, you know, 40 years ago, it was kind of revolutionary. And now it's like, yeah, that, obviously, that's how you, you build operating systems. And it's all kind of, it's sunk into the platform, right? It's all substrate. And it's stuff that you don't need to worry about because, you know, we've been, we've been fighting with it for long enough that we figured out where, where the, the hard bits are. And everyone basically is moving up the stack now, right? So you no longer need to concern yourself so much about what the underlying machine is doing and what the OS is doing. And, you know, I would say... People will disagree with this, and there's there's this kind of you know quasi movement called mechanical sympathy, where people try to, to try to understand what the actual hardware is doing and and to to build software in such a way as to maximize your efficiency in terms of using the hardware. But most people you know are writing software that that really doesn't have those kinds of performance considerations, and usually you're better off optimizing for productivity. Like just let's just get the product to market faster. Let's iterate enough that we understand what the actual requirements are, um, and then. So, I mean, this is this is something I've been I've been saying to people for a, for a little while, basically, um, and it's kind of related. Um, basically, if you if you're in a situation where you're not really sure what the requirements are, um, which for me that's, that's just my life, right? Like I I tend to be involved in those kinds of projects, whether it's startups or building platforms, and some people just can't stand unclear requirements. Um, and that's fine. You you can you do you do you and I'll do me basically. But um, if you don't really know what the requirements are, then then the best thing you can do is is rapidly iterate, right? So you need to explore really quickly and really um, you need to to get answers to small questions constantly. And then once you get to the end of this process of experimentation, and and once you figure out what it is you were supposed to have been building all this time. Then it's life is great. You can just rewrite the damn thing, right? It, it, it turns out like this is the actual requirements. Like I've studied the problem, and I think that this is a, a good description of of what we're trying to build. Once you get to that point, you're golden, right? Once you actually understand the essence of, of the of the solution, in addition to the essence of the problem, now you can just rewrite it, right? Now it's like okay, now I care about performance. Now that I know what the thing is supposed to be, um, so this is kind of like my own like weirdly colored perspective on on things because I, I'm. I'm frequently found to be, you know, working on stuff where the requirements aren't very clear. Um, either it's a bleeding edge industry or there's not much competition or for whatever reason, right? Like I tend to, to get involved in, in projects that have a high degree of uncertainty. And I, I, pers I personally love it. Like I, I'm much happier in, in sort of, you know, greenfield foggy projects than, than stuff where the requirements are really clear. Well, I don't know. I'm conflicted about this, like everything else, right? Sometimes I, I crave sort of the simplicity of somebody says, here's what the system has to do, and my job is to just make the system do that. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes it, it, I feel like it would be nice to be able to to do um, a fairly uh, 
try not to be disparaging of of simpler software basically but it would be nice to to have a, a clear picture of what we're trying to build and to have the skills to build it and just to deliver basically um well simpler or not i mean the com the software itself could be very complex but yeah. um the the problem might be well understood yeah that's true i don't know this it's these kinds of, of philosophical conversations like I, I really enjoy them but there there's there are absolutely no no reliable or clear guidelines or answers it's just everything is context like i said before well as you were saying that i was kind of thinking um about the process and about you know sort of getting stuff out there and rap rapidly iterating based on feedback which really i guess depends on who's had a chance to use it uh, up till then and what feedback you actually cared about uh, to listen to versus something like um looking at sort of the the product life cycle uh, of apple products for example um kind of really thinking about what they were going to build, building it out, investing all in on that, then marketing it and then bringing it to market um, is kind of the opposite of that. And I think you really have to have a not only a solid understanding of what it is that you want to uh, put out there, but a bit of a control over your customer. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. I mean, I'm reminded of the I guess there's Steve Jobs was fond of of quoting from Henry Ford, which was probably apocryphal, knowing knowing people involved. But he would say that if you ask people what they want, they'll say they want a faster horse, right? Um, and of course, you know, when when you're trying to start the the mass production of the automobile, like that's obviously not anywhere close to what you what you're going to deliver. Um, and I think that you have to be cautious in balancing. Um, a sort of a, a pull-based model of requirements where customers complain about this and they say, boy, it would sure be great if the system could do that, um, versus a push-based uh, model where customers don't necessarily know what they want or they, they don't they don't have the, the language to describe their, their, um, their sort of target solution. And that, that's kind of, I guess this is a minor digression, but that's kind of why I'm such an advocate of, of aspects of domain-driven design, right? I guess there's a fair community community but um so I, I really strongly advocate for for a domain modeling as being sort of one of the most important parts of a software project um, and it's you know the idea is that um if you can get everyone on the team to agree on on the language in which users can express their intent um then the system's job is to is to do what the user told it to do basically right but if the user doesn't have if the system doesn't give the user tools to to express their intent, then there's an, there's an impedance mismatch or, or an encoding problem, basically. And the the fact that the, the the user can convey their intent to the system, the system does what the user expects. That's great. But the most important thing is actually social, right? So the the great part about domain modeling for me is that you essentially get everyone to, to agree that yeah, this is the language in which the user's intent is registered. And if if we can't spell it using these characters, then it's not going to get delivered, right? And just just that sort of you know that process of of agreeing on the on the configuration space, um, I think is is super valuable. And who has to be on board with that? I think everyone has to basically, like product management, architects, senior devs. I mean, junior devs like their their opinions are are still relevant, but usually you can argue with them and, and convince them of anything. So so it's you know. It's it's not that their opinions are are any less valid. It's just it's that you can push them around basically. So um, this is this is funny, right? Because 
when you when you manage people, like if you are somebody's manager, um, this is going back to a, a podcast that I like called Manager Tools. Um, in Manager Tools, they say that you know, as a manager, you you sort of implicitly have a, a big red flashing sign on, on your forehead that says, "I can fire you." And the people that you manage that are on your team, they see that even if you don't see it in the mirror, and they, they will they will adjust the way that they talk to you and the way that they communicate with you based on that knowledge of of the the power that you have over them, basically. Um, so this kind of just goes to the you know, junior devs are are less likely to express opinions about things. So it's it's not that their opinions don't matter; it's just that they they're less likely to actually complain when when you're making a mistake. I guess that can go both ways. It reminded me of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers. He'd mentioned something about how you know different cultures in different countries, particularly uh, in South Korea at the time, led to uh, a, you know a variation in age and younger co-pilots not being able to argue with a pilot. And yeah, that was the, the power distance index was the, the metric he was talking about. That was a fascinating story. I mean, I feel like I've read most of Gladwell's books. I like his podcast as well. It's, it's called Revisionist History. Uh, but I feel like probably 80% of what he says is is about to be disproved by by some actual scientist somewhere within 15 years. Um, and like he tells beautifully compelling stories, but it's I'm I'm skeptical that that you know the conclusions that he's drawing based on on the evidence that he's seen really will hold up. You can invest sort of your your time or your your efforts into things that have potential to uh, really take off. That's certainly true. Um, so, you know, one of the the projects that, I, that I've, I've talked about a little bit, the streaming analytics project, is is in the in the folder of the incubation zone. So there's this book by Jeffrey Moore that was released a year or two ago uh, called Zone to Win, and the executives at Splunk were, were super enthused about it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that, that he advocates in the book is that you should set aside some 10 to 15 percent of, of, of the money in the company, basically, to speculative projects. Um, and they're like incubation zone projects, and that's kind of you know that's kind of my specialty basically. I don't know if I'm, I'm any good at it, but it's it's what I seem to do at least. And yeah, that's about half of, of my time is spent on on that kind of thing at Splunk right now. So what's the difference between that ten to fifteen percent on speculative projects and uh, traditional R and D? Good question. Um, there isn't necessarily a crisp difference. Um, so if if you look at Jeffrey Moore at, at the Zone to Win book, there's the other three zones. So incubation zone is kind of the the small one. There's also um, the performance zone, which is basically, if I understand correctly, is about you know selling what you have effectively. There's the productivity zone, which is about you know building stuff that you will be able to sell in in the near to not so near future. And the third is the transformation zone, which is like when you when you find out that you're in a position where oh geez you know the market is moving in this direction we're not. And you find that suddenly you need to, to sort of, you know, to retarget substantial parts of the company's resources. That's when you're in the transformation zone. And the, there's some very specific advice in there, which I find interesting, which is that you can only do one at a time. There, there can only be one transformational process um, active at a time. And the CEO has to personally run the thing, right? Uh, which I find is deliciously specific advice. Um, but anyway, the so the question of, of what's What's R and D versus what's kind of speculative and risky? That's that's a that is literally a billion dollar question, right? Like software companies live and die based on on their answers to these questions over a, a long time scale. Um, so I'm not going to pretend to have any any useful answers there. Um, it's just that you know when you are making these kinds of decisions about how to allocate resources and which projects belong in which kinds of of management um, frameworks. 
you have to do that carefully because there's no there's no obvious answers at all, right? I mean, that, that's kind of one of my rules of thumb that I've one of my uh, I guess my bullshit management mantras over the past couple of years is that when you get to a certain level in your career, you only exclusively work on hard problems, right? Everything that was that had an obvious answer, everything that's easy is it's already been delegated to somebody more junior than you, or it's you know it's already open source and you're just using it. Or it's just not your problem. And once you get to a certain level, you only deal with stuff that no one has any idea how to do it, right? Everything, literally everything that you spend time on is something that, that just requires, you know, skull sweat and hard work and, and taking a few guesses. Um, so the, the, the sort of the further you get, the, the less confidence you should have in, in your ability to, to give a snap judgment about particular situations. But I guess you, you should have more confidence in your ability to sort of, think through the implications of various choices that you could make and sort of project, you know, the, the potential outcomes. Uh, and there's no, that's just, you know, it, it's very, very far from a science, right? I mean, computer science, sure, it's, it's, it's pretty much a science, but the more layers you build on top of it, the shakier everything gets. And when you get to the, to the top of the stack, which is not where I'm at by any means, but you know, you're, you're relying on so much that's gone before you. And it's really difficult to, to, produce any kind of, you know, generalized, accurate decision-making process. I guess you have to sort of think as well about, um, you know, how how accurate do you want to try and be or how adventurous do you want to try and get? Um, it re- reminds me of the story of, you know, developing um, a, an AI to find the bottom uh, or on, on a device to find the bottom of a valley. Yeah. And you drop it in, and if it goes, you know, one way, it, it determines that it's going up, so it goes the other way. But... Uh, you know, and it might find the bottom of part of this valley, but if it had gone just a little bit further, then it would find that it's actually yeah, much, the much local further local minimum. So this in machine learning, this is a, this is an extremely relevant topic, right? So there's there's a whole class of optimization algorithms. Um, one of them is called gradient descent, and that's what it's all about. Is you you're, you're you live in a multi-dimensional space. You have a loss function which tells you how close are you to your goal, basically, or how you know how bad is your current your current situation and you try to move in a direction that 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 reduces your loss function but getting stuck in a local minimum is is obviously that's a problem right and this is when you, you in, so i'm not a machine learning expert i just work with a bunch of them but people talk about um uh, there's something about saddles anyway uh, i was going to say um, we were talking about about operating on the basis of very little or limited evidence um my my boss's boss um he has this great idea that that I guess he says he got from Colin Powell. But the idea is that if you if you should make decisions when your certainty is between forty to seventy percent, um, which is really interesting, right? So the idea is if you if you wait wait until you have perfect information, too much time has gone gone past, and it's the decision is stale, and you waited too long, and the opportunity is gone. If you make decisions too early, then you know your decision will be bad because you don't have enough information. So you have to actually you have to aim for the middle, right? Which is really interesting. You, you can't wait for certainty and you can't rush. You just have to have to figure out, you know, are we in a good, do we, are we, do we have enough information now to make a decision with reasonable confidence, uh, with the, you know, the goal of, you know, making, a, making a decision quicker is often advantageous, not only in business, but in, in pretty much all contexts of, of life. Very interesting. Yeah. I definitely see a lot of over, overlaps, uh, on various levels of potentially business, software development, and, and life choices in a lot of the things we've been talking about. Um, I'd like to get back to some of the job postings that we have out there uh, for Splunk and what sort of what sort of software developer or engineer 
would be slash should be uh, interested in that and might find themselves being challenged. What sort of problems, problem sets might they work on uh, and what would be a good addition to the team? I have, to, I have to try to. I, I tend to talk too much about about things that are that are not public information. So I need to try to confine myself to what's actually on the job postings. Um, so I think I have two or three postings open right now. Um, one of them is a principal software engineer in the streaming analytics project. So this is kind of like the incubation zone Skunkworks project. We're doing streaming analytics. Um, we're using a lot of a lot of Scala, and I can't say too much more about it. Um, if you read the job posting, there's there's a bit more details there. Um, but it's it's kind of a just distributed systems backend. Um, if you if you have written a query optimizer before, then I really would like to talk to you um, in particular. Uh, but that's fairly rare. Uh, most people kind of learn a little bit about optimization in, in undergrad or or grad school, and then and then forget it all within a few years. But it's pretty relevant to a lot of a lot of companies. Um, so that's kind of you know principle is uh, you know ten years or more of experience. Um, a, not exclusively, but a lot of uh, JVM background for that one. Um, on the other side, on the machine learning side, um, historically, it's it's been almost entirely Python, you know, probably two-thirds Python, one-third JavaScript, right? So the machine learning toolkit, you know, the thing I mentioned earlier, that's an add-on for Splunk. Um, it has a, a fairly rich UI over top of, of some machine learning uh, commands, basically. And the commands themselves are written in Python. They, they're they based on open source machine learning algorithms, uh, like in the scikit-learn library and that kind of thing. And then the the upper tier is, is substantially JavaScript. It's just a fairly modern web app. Um, on that side of the business, we, we probably want more than just Python and JavaScript now. Um, and I don't want to say too much about the details. <laughs> If users want to reach out to you, what would be a good way to do so? Uh, I'm on Twitter. My my Twitter handle is Alex Cruz, um, and I'm pretty easy to Google. Actually, there's not too many people with with my name in the world. I guess my my website uh, it's clueonflux.com. Although I haven't blogged in about ten years, but uh, my email address, my personal email address, is alex at clueonflux.com, and that's spelled C-L-U-O-N-F-L-U-X.com. And it's it's this crazy reference to the jargon file. You know the the carrier particle of bogosity is the bogon, and its antiparticle is the cluon. So when you have a lot of them flowing through a space, you get a high cluon flux. Well, Alex Cruz, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Check out our website, vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. Much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter, Van Tech Podcast. Feel free to leave some comments below. You can also hit us up on the YBR Dev, the Vancouver Tech, the Van Tech Slacks. I'm at James. And I'm at Drew. Special thanks to Same Room for hooking us up with an integration that allows us to have a cross-team Slack channel, Van Devs. Do you have a meetup that you want us to plug? Email us, show at vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Music by A Shell in the Pit from the game Parkitect. See you at one of the meetups around, around town. town.